0: This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, reach out and touch someone!
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show where we're trying to put the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gepwin and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week we watched a thoroughly boring, boring, boring episode where nothing happened for a long time.
0: Yep. <laughs> uh lots of sort of like if we have to be anxious and drama-filled, but not a whole lot's actually going on. Hmm.
1: This episode is called That Witch Survives, which I am wondering if is a very poor taste pun.
0: Yeah, kinda. <laughs>
1: It's a weird, weird, weird episode. Uh, this is another one that had some story influenced by DC Fontana, but was written for television by John Meredith based on a DC Fontana story.
0: Uh, has this person done stuff before? Oh yeah, they, they did uh, things like The Ultimate Computer and The Omega Glory.
1: Yes, the changeling patterns of force. Yes. <laughs> Alan of Taurus to Taurus, you yeah.
0: <laughs> try it
1: try, try us you know. yeah that one <laughs> we have a few guest stars this time uh even though it's a weirdly condensed episode a few random people do show up main mm-hmm. guest is lee merriweather playing Lorisa.
0: wait a moment i know this lady because she was also on batman yes this time the movie though. <laughs> yes I think she was, uh, like, uh, in a small ro- uh, role in the uh, the, t- uh, the CV- uh, TV series as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lisa Carson in two episodes. I have no idea who that is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Best known for playing Catwoman in the 1966 Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Also was on something called Barnaby Jones.
0: And the time tunnel.
1: Oh, yeah, the time tunnel. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But, uh, yeah, she's still uh, kicking around. And, uh, you know, his ha- most recent credit was uh, love and debt in uh, last year. Or so
1: that's nice when they're still working and alive so many times. It's like, oh, I didn't know that this actor was in so many things. And they died last year.
0: Oh, she was also in uh, you know, the, the, the rise of Catwoman of the Catwoman. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Playing Catwoman again.
0: Uh, no, uh, Nana. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never knew that existed.
1: <laughs> we also have Arthur Batandis. I can't pronounce this name.
0: He's but, but
1: playing Lieutenant Ziamato. He's a character actor from the 60s on things like Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Perry Mason, Man Trap.
0: Uh, and uh, I think he was also in uh, Galactica 1980.
1: Yep, the old Galactica... And uh, every Police Academy movie except the first one.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, he was also uh, an uncredited background actor in The Ten
0: Commandments. This guy gets around. Future, the Police Academy gears, and Ancient U World. <laughs> And finally,
1: we have Booker Bradshaw back in his second appearance as Dr. Mbenga, the other doctor on the ship who's good at his job, and I don't know why they have McCoy at all with this guy on board.
0: Well, uh, you yeah, uh, know, Dr. Mbenga is probably like the guy who treats everyone other than Spock and Kirk. <laughs> so he's like really busy all the time. Yeah. McCoy's well, just like, ah, I- I- I'm your friends with you guys. So I could make sure you guys don't die. This is good enough for me uh do you want some drinks all
1: right other than that it's a pretty small short episode with not a lot going on so we can probably rush through this really quick and then we also don't have anything to talk about afterwards so we oh, no. might make this episode stretch
0: <laughs> well, yeah it's, we tend to do such anyway it's just things kind of come up as we go through
1: yeah basically we just ramble about whatever we feel like on episodes like this generally but we should probably get the story out of the way first yes So the Enterprise has found an impossible planet.
0: Wait a moment. Is this a Doctor Who episode suddenly?
1: Yes, the impossible planet. (laughs) This planet seems to have formed only a few thousand years ago and is only about the size of Earth's moon, but it has Earth normal gravity and Earth atmosphere and developed plant life.
0: Reminds me, I need to run some calculations. Um, I'll be back in a moment. (laughs) Go ahead.
1: Kirk decides that he, McCoy, Sulu, and their local geologist, DeMato, should go down to this planet to investigate what on earth is going on.
0: It's hmm, very strange. This is so weird. Um, yeah, let's just beam down and you know not bother to scan too much from orbit.
1: Just as they're beaming down, a woman dressed in a ridiculous purple outfit appears and tells them they must not go to the planet, and then touches the transporter operator, killing him instantly.
0: Oh no. A red shirt has died. It's
1: apparently too late to stop anything, and the crew materialize on the planet just as an earthquake knocks them off their feet. Apparently an earthquake big enough to also shake the Enterprise, which everyone falls over and goes, ah. (laughs) It's
0: an earthquake so massive it shakes two sets at the same time.
1: Not only that, but as soon as they recover on the bridge, they discover that the planet is gone. Oh no, the planet's
0: exploded.
1: And back on the planet, Kirk and Company discover the Enterprise is gone.
0: Well oh, that's that's a little annoying. Um so the Enterprise exploded, oh no.
1: <laughs> yep. Sulu really thinks something exploded. But there's no debris, there's no radiation. Sulu can't get off this the Enterprise probably exploded thing, but no one knows. But the thing is that they're stranded on what is a deeply inhospitable planet.
0: Well, that kinda sucks. Um you guys have any cards?
1: They should. Shouldn't their tricorders have, like, card games or something built in? They never discussed that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, our cell phones, like today, can have all sorts of games in them. Why can't the future guys, right?
1: (laughs) Back on the ship, they appear to have taken no damage, but they have been thrown almost a thousand light years away from the planet, or, as Spock points out because he is in one of his moods this episode, 990.7 light years.
0: Yeah, Spock is just kind of one, you know, kind of a jerk face today. He's like, oh, I have to correct everyone constantly because I'm just pissy for some reason.
1: Also, Dr. Umbanga is performing an autopsy on the transporter officer whose death was apparently caused by massive cellular disruption, whatever that means.
0: I'm guessing it means like the cell walls have like just kind of come apart, I guess. Yeah,
1: it's as if the cells were all blasted apart from the inside and nothing could have done this that they know of anyway.
0: So, like, everything else they encountered on the show, got it.
1: Yeah, except there's no external physical damage. You'd imagine if every cell in your body exploded, you would become kind of gooey.
0: Yeah, you'd be at least, like, oozing something.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't just fall down and be like, okay, done now.
0: <laughs> oh no, I am the dead.
1: Kirk and company are trying to find food and water, because there is none. All the plants are poisonous and there is no water anywhere. It's also some sort of microscopic organism that's like a virus or parasite or something, but that's it. It does nothing, and they only comment on it now so they can make some kind of weird point later.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of not super important. Just another bit of mystery.
1: They split up to survey the area, and D'Amato encounters the same woman they saw in the transporter, but he doesn't recognize her because he's stupid.
0: Yeah, like, were you not paying attention to that weird thing that happened on your way down, or did you just like knock your head on the rocks when the Earth and slash space quake happened, and you just forgot everything for the last few minutes? Uh,
1: Random women in weirdly recognizable, strange outfits just happen all the time.
0: Well, it is the original series, so I mean, yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, there's a woman in weird clothes. (laughs) This is not strange to me. She knows D'Amato's name, she knows his job, she knows who his friends are, and she keeps saying she is for him.
0: Oh, um, cool. Um, is this gonna be, like, some part of weird, like, we have to get married now sort of thing, or what?
1: Yeah, seems to be. Something along then.
0: (laughs) Well, I I guess they're gonna be spending the rest of their lives together. (laughs) But anyway, you're saying... (laughs)
1: Just then, McCoy picks up a life form, reading of tremendous intensity. Which I, what is a tremendously intense life form?
0: Well, I guess it either means it's very dense or it's very large.
1: It's way too up in your face.
0: Yes. It's
1: like, dear, you be like this life form's being really intense right now. needs needs to chill.
0: It's like back off, back up. You're right in my face. You're up in my grill here. I'm not I'm not okay with this, lady.
1: Then it disappears just as quickly. Like a door opening and shutting.
0: It's like our sensors are like doors, man. And like the future's like a window. We look out at the other doors, man.
1: The mushroom planet was two seasons ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it came from the direction of DeMoto, who they find dead.
0: Well, um, either there's something here that's going around killing people... Or, you know, the gravity here is about 14 times that of Earth normal, so everyone should, you know, the other team should be falling over pretty soon anyway. Which is what I just calculated.
1: (laughs) Kirk decides they should give him a proper burial and fires his phaser at the ground to dig a hole, but it doesn't.
0: Well, that's a little strange. I guess we have to turn it up to extra deadly now. Yeah, he tries again,
1: and it still has no effect, so they soon discover that the planet is in fact made of a super-dense artificial alloy that is just barely covered with topsoil.
0: So what you're saying is that we could, you know, take this massive planet here, strip off its exterior uh, coating here, and build spaceships out of it that are now immune to phasers.
1: Yeah, they could do so much with the weird stuff they discover on this show, and they just ignore (laughs) it.
0: Yeah, (laughs) like, yeah, this is amazing, it could totally change our world forever and what's just forgotten for next week
1: back on the ship they are on their way back to the planet as fast as they can but it'll still take about 11 and a half hours or 11.337 hours spock is in a mood be precise
0: (laughs) like all these humans are so so estimating around me i have to you have to get my revenge man
1: this has always amused the crap out of me because like by the time someone says 11.337 hours 15 seconds 10 nanoseconds like you've already taken four seconds to say it so that your exact number is off anyway
0: indeed unless you're like really good at timing it so you stop speaking right on the mark
1: yeah but then what was the point of that
0: none (laughs) the Spock Spock should get a beep at the tone it will be (laughs)
1: Thank you for calling. What time is it? At the sound of the tone, we will have 11.337 hours before we reach the planet. Beep. Beep. <laughs> Scotty tries to communicate that something doesn't feel right about the ship. His engines no. are off or something.
0: So, so Wait a moment. We, we got a mystery. Scotty's got a feeling that the engines are off and Spock's having a bad mood for some reason, despite being a Vulcan. So Obviously, these are connected, right?
1: Yeah, it should be. Spock has no time for this weird, illogic feelings that the engineer has about the ship.
0: All right. Well, screw you, Spock. Uh, I guess we're just not going to do anything then to worry about Scotty's feeling here. And uh, Scotty's going to be upset and he's going to go cry to uh, one of the red shirts. Yeah. Scotty
1: sends his assistant to check the bypass on the matter-antimatter reaction, even though the computer reads fine. There, the assistant finds that woman again. (sighs)
0: Wait, lady, what are you doing here?
1: She asks what the things are, and he just tells her, oh, it's just a random cutoff switch. And she's like, haha, you're lying, but that's a good precaution. You don't want random people to know that this could blow up the ship.
0: Yeah. So, good precaution. Also, how do. She's a lie detector, too?
1: Apparently, yeah. She just does everything. multipurpose purpose tool.
0: Yeah, that works. <laughs> she's magic. Got it.
1: And she says that she is there for him, Mr. Assistant Dude. He's smart enough to go, hey, there's a strange woman on board the ship. But by the time Scotty gets there, she's gone and he's dead.
0: Oh, no. He's, he's wearing a red shirt, Gepwin.
1: Oh, no. So that's, we all know that's, what that means. He's in command. He's wearing a red shirt because I'm used to another series.
0: Well, from this point on, yeah, everyone running, uh, wearing a red shirt is in command because this is the last red shirt death of the original series that's on screen. <laughs> Poor Watkins. He was this close. (laughs) Oh,
1: no. Someone had to be the last. Yes. Mbanka later discovers that Watkins died from the same thing that killed Transporter Dude.
0: Hmm, So you must have some sort of intruder on board.
1: Night falls on the planet. and Sulu volunteers to take first watch. Predictably, the woman shows up again. And this time she knows everything about Sulu and has come for him.
0: Hmm. Sulu thing's a little bit more wily than the random guy they brought down with them.
1: Because he tries to shoot her, but it doesn't do anything. And uh, he then calls for help. But before they can get there, he is brushed lightly on the shoulder by her, which apparently hurts a lot, but isn't fatal. I don't know what level of touching is deadly or not. They're very unclear here.
0: So, uh, like, a third of a second, you just have a lot of pain. A, A half a second, you lose the entire arm. Full second, you're dead.
1: Kirk steps in between them, having now arrived, and she touches Kirk and nothing.
0: Oh, um, that's kind of weird. So then so, Kirk shoves her. So her touch of death is target-specific.
1: They try to question her, but she won't answer any questions and turns into a two-dimensional being and leaves. Oh,
0: no, I do that sometimes.
1: Good way to get out of awkward conversations. Yes. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm not on the same-dimensional plane! Back in the Enterprise, the ship is speeding up, but Scotty didn't do it.
0: Hmm. Wait wait a moment, are we going to hit warp 10 again?
1: Probably, they do that a lot.
0: Especially in this last season, they're all going to turn to lizards, it's, it's crazy.
1: Scotty quickly discovers that the matter-antimatter integrator is fused, in fact deliberately sabotaged.
0: So basically your fuel injectors are just sort of wedged open, and there's no way to... Close them remotely.
1: There's nothing they can do about it, except if someone were to crawl into the still running engine and poke at the magnetic field with a probe thingy that's probably going to blow up anyway.
0: So I will give them some good props here because the, they sort of talk about you know the magnetic bottle for the antimatter and all that. And that is kind of how you, 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 you channel a antimatter around like that. So, uh, Bravo on the you know, for them to get that detail correct.
1: Yeah, because antimatter can't touch anything. So, yes, keep it yes. in a magnetic field, isolated from everything else in the world.
0: No, I, I should know this because I've been near one of the largest, uh, you know, storehouses of antimatter in the world myself.
1: Oh, cool! They have like all two molecules of it in
0: there. Um, yeah. well, it was most, mostly just protons, you know, antiprotons. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> not full molecules.
1: <laughs> yeah, a molecule would be like you'd win a Nobel for a molecule. <laughs>
0: Yes. And then you could, like, test things like, you know, does gravity affect at the same rate as normal matter? Because that has some important ramifications that are relevant for this episode. Moving on.
1: (laughs) So, Scotty crawls into the engines to start fixing things very, very slowly.
0: I hope we don't have a uh, countdown timer for this.
1: Yeah, they say he's got, like, I forget how long, but when he starts, it's like, we've got, like, 20 minutes to fix this. Mm-hmm. And then he's just in there doing nothing until it's like, we have five seconds
0: to fix this. It's like, okay, I'm going to put the thing in. And then it's like, oh, it does not working. It's going to fail. It's Like, okay, we tried this up one thing here. Um, No, let me spend 15 seconds to fix that. <laughs> and then there are 10 seconds after that. So we're down like 15 seconds in total. And oh, it works.
1: So back. Back down planet side, Sulu's being checked up by McCoy, who says his shoulder is dead, basically. It's covered in a layer of necrotic tissue. Other than that, he'll be fine.
0: Well, I, I guess Sulu's arm has to be, uh, you know, chopped off at some point.
1: Yeah, they need to get him back soon, because just to point out, necrotic tissue is bad. Yeah. It's really bad.
0: It seems like, well, it's like it's attached to me, but it's not really alive anymore. Yeah, so. that's not great. Yeah,
1: It's not good yeah. when part of you is dead.
0: Yes. Unless you're a zombie. Sulu's a zombie? So they start
1: moving again, and Kirk's phaser starts to overload, because apparently the woman can also disable their weapons. It throws it and it blows up.
0: Well, I don't remember. Has there been a phaser overload before? I think there has been.
1: I think at least once. Or maybe it was a tricorder overload the last time.
0: It was a while ago, no matter what, but... Yeah, something overloading, yeah. There's, at least there's some continuity there, so hooray.
1: A little later on they find that weird energy spike again like a door thing that's doing something. Mm. And the woman appears.
0: Yes, she's back.
1: This time she's here for Kirk and I'm surprised he can contain himself with the other two step in front of him and, and she's very confused because she's got to touch Kirk, but they're in the way. How must I can't get around you two? Oh no.
0: Well, I, I can't like you know, teleport behind them or something like that. That's impossible, even though I can apparently teleport in and out of places. They sort
1: of get to interrogate her a little bit while she's trying to poke through them to touch him. Okay. <laughs> Very ineffectively. Eh, <laughs> I want to touch us, get, get out of the way.
0: Uh, eh. I, I will say that Kirk is kind of making it ex- uh, easy for her at points. Like, if she's really quick, she could just sort of reach out and grab him. But
1: apparently her name is... Lysira and she doesn't want to kill anyone it's just her function
0: well that's awkward then Um, so you both want death and also not death
1: she defends this place and they are here you know what's she gonna do
0: well if you don't want us to be here you can tell us to get lost and not you know make our ship disappear so we can leave
1: yeah that would be helpful yeah according to their instruments she doesn't exist so
0: Wait, a minute, where's that intense life form then? Maybe there's someone yeah, where else was here.
1: the intense life form? <laughs> then she just dis- up and disappears again. Well, that was awkward. Scotty has just no luck fixing the ship because every time he tries to touch the magnetic field, it starts to collapse, which is going to blow things up. And that's about it. He yep. just does this for a long time. Yep. Spock takes some time to think about how Scotty said that the ship felt wrong. And finally, after doing some calculations, instructs Scotty, to reverse the polarity on his magic probe Mabobber, which Scotty does, but it's stuck, and oh my god, I can't do it. You have to jettison me and save the ship, even though it's probably going to blow up anyway, I guess. Because mm-hmm. if oh, we could I... jettison part of the ship and prevent this, why are we doing this now?
0: Good question, you know. I, I guess they don't want to get stuck somewhere without a warp core that's a fate worse than death, maybe? I don't know.
1: But he's barely able to, like, reverse the doodly-doo and puts it in the thingy Mabob bob and fixes the ship just before it blows up.
0: Yeah, so uh, apparently Scotty's not very good at taking care of his tools, because it's it's really stuck when it's, on the one mode.
1: Apparently, Spock figured out that when they were transported away from the planet, the Enterprise reversed polarity, whatever that means, and that's why the ship felt different, even though nothing was wrong.
0: Hmm. So Scotty has the ability to sense polarity changes in the environment around him. It's kind of badass. Well,
1: we'll talk about that later. It's one of the only things to talk about in this episode. Back on the planet, a door opens. Not kind of like a door opens this time. An actual rock moves and shows them a hallway.
0: Well, uh, this is nifty. Uh, wait a moment. This explains the set that I was moving earlier. It's all part of some sort of elaborate funhouse. This is great.
1: Kirk and company enter the large purple room where there's a big light-up cube hanging from the ceiling.
0: What is a Some sort of cube?
1: LaRosa appears and announces that she is here for Kirk. And they get in front of him. Then a second and third appear, announcing they're there for the other two, and now they can't like protect each other, so they do like a shell game.
0: Yep. <laughs> so you stand here, I'll stand here, and you stand here. Crap, they can still reach us. Uh-
1: <laughs> everyone switch, and then they all all the laroses get confused of wait, no, I was supposed to touch what which one? Oh no.
0: So confusing. Um mm, uh, 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 dance. wait.
1: Yeah, this just yeah. confuses the the snot out of the LaRosa's clones. Yeah, and the audience. Uh, but eventually they get surrounded, and they're going to all definitely die. Then Spock and a guard suddenly beam down, and Kirk says, Shoot the cube thingy! And they do. And then all the LaRosa's disappear.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, those evil holograms are now gone. Hooray! Just
1: then, the wall turns into a TV. Larosa appears, or Lucira. I keep saying, I don't know what her name is. Anyway, Purple Woman appears. Yes,
0: Lucira, yeah. You are here on, a, on the reality game show.
1: She explains that they are all dead. She's dead, all the people who were there are dead. Probably our entire civilization is dead because when they made this planet, the biological doodly-doo they found was actually a plague that they may have accidentally made when they created this base or whatever. And by the time her people get there with the supplies, they'll all be dead. So she set the computer on automatic defense mode to wait for them to show up.
0: Good on you to put up a warning sign that, you know, this place is going to murder anyone that comes by. Thanks, lady.
1: So, you know, they probably all got the plague. The supply ship probably picked up the plague and brought it back to their planet. And everyone who was of this species now, has been dead for who knows how long. Whoops. McCoy goes, "Oh, it's such a waste. She was beautiful. And Spock goes, that's a dumb thing to say, McCoy. Because beauty is transitory. And Kurt goes, no, beauty survives.
0: In this recording only.
1: Like, it's some sort of deep thing. I don't know. Beauty survives. Beam us up. The end of episode. dun
0: Maybe, like, the concept of beauty? Or that there's just recordings of this lady that have lost lasted- it? thousands of years it's all right
1: it's all right i still find this picture of her hot i'll be in my bunk
0: all right kirk you you really shouldn't like say that last bit out out loud (laughs) because we we all know what you mean now here so uh just go away so that was an episode
1: yeah that certainly was an episode of the original series
0: (laughs) i won't say it's terrible but it's also not Super interesting,
1: yeah, I was talking over with my girlfriend what on earth to try to talk about this e- with this episode. She's like, well, her makeup did match the sky, so that was kind of cool
0: I didn't notice that actually. <laughs> I
1: like think she coordinated her makeup and outfit with the sky
0: I guess that's sort of on par with like you know coordinating your socks with the uh, medications you take a day, so <laughs> yeah, it's like well, that's kind of interesting but i don't see the point
1: <laughs> i only have like two ideas for this episode maybe half of a third and we almost mentioned one a minute ago so let's talk about intuition
0: yes intuition so uh so so what do you what do you think is going to happen here uh Are we talk about intuition here what's the feeling you got
1: so several times during the episode scotty says that the shit feels wrong and spock first calls him stupid then takes him seriously and then figures it out because when people interact with something every day, all the time, like Scotty interacts with the ship and its engines, you notice when something seems different. You might not be able to articulate it, but something doesn't feel the same.
0: Yeah, Because your, your brain has been gotten used to the certain p- pattern for these things you interact with constantly and something not being correct anymore, it's going to ping your brain, even if you can't properly identify it. And so it just starts getting in the back of your head and it's like, it's got this weird feeling now.
1: Yeah. And this is very well documented because do you know what the easiest way to identify fraudulent currency is? To look at it? You just give it to a bank teller. (laughs) They touch money all the time. Every day they touch it. They look at it. They smell it. You give them a fake like dollar bill and they go, yeah, this is fake.
0: Neat. (laughs) Didn't didn't realize that was a thing. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's definitely a thing. Like people who deal with money all the time, if you give them a counterfeit piece of money, they go, This is wrong. Almost instantly. They might not be able to tell you exactly why for a while, but it's like, yeah, this is not this is not real. You
0: know, there's a you know, slight error in the inking, or there's a wrong thread count in the material or something else. You know, yeah, it just feels different.
1: wrong, it looks wrong, something just is a little bit off. It's like, yeah, this is wrong. This is not a correct dollar because I look at to interact with these things all the time. So you know when it's right or wrong, just intuitively.
0: because yeah. you, you when you are sort of perceiving things ar- around you, you don't necessarily actively think about all the little details like that. You sort of you know bring them in and sort of I guess um, you know uh, what, what's what's the right term here? Um, collect them up into a big big pot and sort of put them into a your, your, your sort of. In you know your intuitive sort of perception of the things, and if something's out of the ordinary, then it brings it up to your conscious mind. There we go. Yes, I said that horribly because I forgot a particular word I was trying to use. But you know,
1: <laughs> but this happens all the time. Everyone can do this. Mm-hmm. You might not notice, and we tend to undervalue it. Depending, we either undervalue it or way overvalue it, depending on the situation, mm-hmm. and usually wrong.
0: That's it's how I play like strategy games, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Different. Well, gut feelings are very useful and it's not something you can always do like you said if you play strategy games all the time then your gut feelings are usually right me who plays strategy games very infrequently my gut feelings are always wrong
0: but uh yeah so in other words if we play eu4 together it's probably not gonna be fair then
1: no we
0: should play eu4 together <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this is a pretty well documented thing it's basically your brain uh takes a minute this is pretty well known for all kinds of things. Uh, the the amount of time that it takes for you to kind of receive inputs and process them and become aware of them and decide what to do, uh, there's lag time there. But you can't have lag time in a lot of situations, especially survival situations. So you need to be able to see if something seems off with the environment you're in it's better to like notice it than not because maybe you've been in this grassy field a million times and now it feels off and you don't want to go. No, it's nothing. I don't see a tiger until you can show me a tiger. I'm going to assume this is fine.
0: Then that one time you get that feeling and there is a tiger, but you haven't seen it. But if you don't, if you ignore that feeling, you're now eaten. Yes. (laughs) So I I guess it's, generally a good idea that if you are from, if you are in a place and doing a thing that you're familiar with and you feel something a little off, maybe there's something a little off.
1: This is just a very anecdotal side note because there's no real particular evidence for this, but I was remembering a thing from years back that uh, when they were trying to find, I believe it was the Titanic, but I might be remembering wrong, but it was a, they were searching for a famous shipwreck that was very difficult to find because it sunk in deeper water and there were a bunch of ocean currents But these were all experts in their field. They had done a bunch of calculations to try to figure out where the ocean currents would have taken the ship, and they just needed to figure out where to start looking. So they laid out their ocean grid that they were using, and they had all of the experts bet on where they thought the ship was. And kind of based on how much they were willing to bet, they were able to use a set of calculations that someone else had come up with to use their bets to weigh how sure they were of their intuitive senses and sort of create a search pattern from there that they claim helped them find the ship more quickly. Nice. But you can't really test that because yeah. you can't have them look for the ship without, with and without this and then yeah. see when they find it.
0: You know, uh, to a certain degree, there is a certain amount of, well, you have to start somewhere, but uh, you know, you know, if that, you know, it would require a much more complicated study in order to see if that was a valid uh, sort of way to move forward.
1: That's a lot of it, because, like, I can just keep repeating this point over and over, but, like, intuitive sense is a thing, and Spock was being stupid.
0: Well, I guess that's maybe why the Vulcans were apparently invaded, as we found out many episodes ago. Yeah, (laughs) the Vulcans
1: are bad at
0: things. (laughs) They're logical, but they have no intuition, so, you know. Uh, I guess this is also uh, maybe you can touch upon uh, when, as people uh, develop things like artificial intelligence, that they have sort of uh been looking at using a sort of intuition in order to help computers learn and things like that. That you sort of establish uh you know a a a matrix of of uh you know established things, you know, you you know, ideas and relations, you know, and you ha- sort of express it in a mathematical fashion. And if you put some new data in, it can either match it up, you know, uh, you know, everything will just work out, out at the end of the day. Or if there is something amiss, something will ping and say, like, oh, we have a mismatch in our pattern recognition here. And then suddenly the computer's like, I don't know what's going on, even though it's a very similar sort of picture to what's going on. And, you know, and sort of trying to fish out what exactly is that this mismatch uh, can give us some insight into what the computer's actually thinking in terms of what it's ad- trying to identify here. Uh, I've told, talked before about the uh, the tanks and clouds before, right?
1: I don't remember.
0: Yes. (laughs) So they were trying to get a computer to uh, identify uh, tanks in uh, uh, scenes, and they had a bunch of pictures that they, you know, and they seemed to got pretty good uh, at identifying which ones had tanks in and which ones did not. And then they tried some new test data, and it got them all wrong. And then they realized that in the first set of data, all the pictures with tanks had clouds, and all the ones without tanks didn't have clouds. And so the computer kind of (laughs) got good at figuring out which pictures had clouds and which ones didn't. So
1: Oh, uh, yeah, the good old black box AIs. Yes.
0: <laughs> so sort of testing the intuition of uh, computers and things like that can be sort of useful in order to figure out how they are thinking, where they are actually you know, getting as far as their inputs.
1: That's why these AI things are so complicated, because the number of things that you have to do to interact with the world, we're trying to replicate the way that we interact with the world, but the way we interact with the world is very strange and unintuitive. Yes, <laughs> But based entirely on intuition.
0: <laughs> intuition is unintuitive. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's your quote for this week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the other thing that we can talk about, which the, I think we had two points that kind of tie into each other. This entire planet is, for all intents and purposes, a defunct weapons system that someone left turned on. Yep.
0: It's basically a death trap that will be there for potentially millions of years with... No one to come by and check on it. And so just sort of there, being there and waiting for anyone to show up and get murdered.
1: So the first thing that I thought of is the only real-world analogy that we can come up with for this, that we still have hanging around, are landmines.
0: Oh, so we go out there, and there's no one taking care of things, and we step on a thing, and suddenly we're, we're killed.
1: Yeah, landmines are a massive problem. Now, they are actually... I was surprised to find out ancient technology, Mm -hmm. Uh, the Romans used uh, not explosive landmines, but like spike traps and some spiky plants that they would lay behind their armies. Uh, The Chinese have had documented explosive landmines since like 1238, I think was the number. So, you know. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. And uh, the Americas started using widespread landmines during the Civil War around
0: 1840. Oh, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, Civil War thing, everyone thinks, like, you know, cavalry and cannons. Well, there's also landmines. It
1: was also very bad. All very bad.
0: The, uh, the Civil War kind of kind of sucked as far as people getting sort of ground up and dead.
1: But during World War I and then into World War Two, landmines were used very extensively to sort of, uh, Control territory, shore up defenses, all the kinds of things. And one thing with landmines is once they are there, they are prohibitively expensive to remove or disarm. So they're still there.
0: A bunch of places in Europe and other parts of the world where landmines from wars, you know, fought decades ago are still there and active and waiting to explode.
1: Yeah, lots of places in Europe, um, usually poorer areas, uh, plenty of places in Africa where they were laying landmines uh, just after World War II.
0: And it's sort of, okay, these are these sort of dead zones here that we can't really use because it's just not really worth the money to try to turn this into like usable land here. Because otherwise you might just, you know, explode.
1: Yeah. So there are currently, uh, finally, international treaties that prohibit the use of landmines for all of the above reasons. Yes. Uh, it, there weren't for a long time.
0: It took us a while to sort of get there, but is, is the U.S. signed on to that at all yet?
1: I'm unclear. I couldn't find it in the research I was able to do.
0: Because right, I remember there was a, you know, so, well, that was like becoming a thing finally in the international community that uh, the U.S. was very resistant to it because of the uh, North-South Korea thing that you know, there was a bunch of landmines along the demilitarized zone there that they really don't want to have to like take out.
1: Yeah, this is the thing like they was trying to make countries that laid landmines responsible for cleaning up the landmines, which a lot of like one that's very expensive. So a lot of countries like the United States that have laid a lot of landmines don't want to have to clean them up. But also it runs into a problem because if you are a either already a poorer nation or you are a nation that just lost a war you might not have the economic stability to spend on clearing up landmines.
0: So, well, we're already massively in debt, um, and we can't really get massively in debt more, so shrug?
1: So, yeah, you wind up with this very sticky situation if you have this thing that's just sitting there and is an active threat to people, both because people don't know they're there, they're not very clearly marked, and uh, people might just accidentally run into the things. Sometimes, if it's a poor enough community, people have to go into those areas for various reasons. Maybe it's a foraging ground or farmland or something, but people can be forced into these areas for various reasons. And also, as with any ordinance, the longer it sits there, the less stable it becomes. So it just becomes dangerous on its own without anyone having to interact with it.
0: And so you hope that it goes off when there's no one around, as opposed to walking near it as opposed to on top of it
1: and this doesn't have an easy solution except for stop using these dang things
0: yes um you know it is you know much more easier said than done but it is one of those things that long term yeah we need to get away from using these things because they're just going to be causing so much problems long term they're not really worth it
1: well the arguments that you see the ones that i read are yeah, it's probably immoral to use the things. Yes, it does cause a lot of long-term problems, but stopping to use them is unrealistic because you they're too militarily and strategically valuable. And you run into a thing that, like, in, in war times, we excuse a lot of things that you normally wouldn't. The entire idea of being at war is basically two countries or more doing a lot of things that in any other time and place would be considered massively immoral.
0: Yep. It's like, it's now acceptable to kill people
1: on mass yes. random bombings and all these other things, yeah,
0: burning down cities, you know, you know, tearing through an entire, you know, uh, you know, bits of countryside, You're like all oh, those, this massive bread basket over here. Yeah. It's kind of now all mud and bombshells. Um, also, if you Birding tanks in there. So, you know.
1: And there is a very massive and valid um, moral discussion to be had on whether there is ever a valid reason to do that and suspend so much of what we consider the normal way that we interact with each other as humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main problem that you hit with landmines and similar and why they are so different is because all the other things, like the shooting and killing each other and the destroying, like the countryside and all those things, can be stopped when the war ends.
0: Yes, but landmines, they stick around there and just keep killing. Well, after everyone's trying to make up and are hopefully on now much more friendly terms.
1: Yeah, and then you either have to go in and clean the things up, which is prohibitively expensive, as we've said, or you have to kind of cordon off the area, which also isn't very fair if you've finished the war because now whichever person's territory those are in suddenly doesn't have access to that land anymore
0: yeah so uh sorry you now have technically you know in a very you know de facto sort of way lost some territory but the other side didn't grab it
1: and there aren't any easy solutions the international community has mostly mostly agreed that these are too bad of an idea to use the same way that we have with uh say like flamethrowers or chemical weapons Mm -hmm. but uh the things that are already there, it's going to take a massive international effort to clean up, and they are affecting poorer nations, so we don't have a lot of reason to do so. It's, it's,
0: we've kind of, everyone's been kind of a jerk about this for a while, and now they're, it's kind of being left with who can't afford it at this point. So
1: Yes, it's pretty depressing, and I wish I had some easier, better answers, but this is what the episode is giving me.
0: <laughs> and But what, what happens if, say we don't clean these sorts of things up there is a threat that's buried under the ground there potentially for centuries or even thousands of years get when what do we do then cuz if you put up a sign someone might just knock it down or it could get covered in overgrowth or something even you know you know more absurd happens and we don't even know and we lose track of the maps of where these landmines are and all this other uh, sort of non things in the long long term this is kind of reminding me of something else um,
1: it might even be long enough that people don't even remember how to read the sign or what the symbols meant
0: well, maybe with landmines we, we could, you know, let the explosives go. Come a nerd after a few centuries, but there is something else that maybe isn't so easily dealt with. I know we are just said landmines are not easy to deal with, but there's something even worse out there uh, that uh, people, uh, you know, are kind of in the you know, situations like, well, we kind of got to bury it somewhere.
1: Yes, and as far as I can tell, there's never been a good name for this because I don't think it's actually been implemented but people call it various things. The main term that I came up with while doing some amount of research is called long-term nuclear waste warnings.
0: Yes. Um, There's a few different versions of the, the terminology I saw myself, but they all are basically on a very similar theme that what do you do if you want to warn someone away from an area where there's a material that is dangerous and will continue to be dangerous well past their lifetime in the far future, how do you communicate to them to not go anywhere near this place? So, Gepwin, how do you do it?
1: <laughs> no one knows.
0: <laughs> no one does. Not even Gepwin. Dratch, I think we're screwed.
1: A lot of this is, seems to kind of mostly be based on sort of one report, one or two reports. Um, the one that I found was called Preventing Human Intrusion into High-Level Nuclear Waste Repository.
0: I I got a a document here uh uh from Sandia as an expert judgment on inadvertent human intrusion of the waste isolation pilot plant. So I, I'm guessing these are very similar topics and people involved.
1: Yeah, probably. Yes. <laughs> if you if you look up uh images for long term nuclear waste warning sites, you will come up with spikes. spikes. Lots and lots of spikes.
0: Huge blocks of uh stone or concrete.
1: Yeah, spiky concrete. Weird symbols, just all kinds of things. And what's what's kind of interesting, I was thinking about this idea and we were I was talking about this with some people. And it's like, you know, if if we had found this, if we more modern people, like it would have been generations ago because we've explored so much of the planet, but you know, anyone who found this weird field of giant spikes would go in there to see what these things were. And it's that weird. got me thinking that like the idea here is both to instantly communicate that there's something dangerous. Like this is the whole idea that they had is like make kind of this massive field of like giant metal spines and spike trees and things, because we have a kind of natural reaction to sharp pointy things as a, like, well, that's bad. Don't get close to the sharp pointy thing.
0: This place makes me uncomfortable. It's like those, uh, those, uh, you know, rooms that are designed to, uh, keep out, uh, sounds and things like that. Or, uh, yeah. Like the little spikes in the walls. Like I just feel awkward in here. We haven't closed the door yet.
1: Which apparently get so disorienting. I haven't heard of this, but like those completely silent rooms that they use for really, really, really sensitive recordings. If you're in there for within like 15 minutes, it gets really disorienting and horrible.
0: Yeah, I've been in one of those. Oh wow! Yes, <laughs> it gets a little weird. <laughs> sounds
1: kind of fun to try. Yeah. So so spikes. What kind of um got me about these spikes is like you have to kind of accept you're dealing with something that is so long-term dangerous someone is going to get hurt by it no matter what you do it's really unfortunate but it is like just a reality of the situation
0: you want to minimize that uh, harm but it's going to happen
1: so the basic idea here is to have something that both it looks threatening it's instantly recognizable but also you will associate it because if this was nothing if you just had a you know nuclear waste depository that you just left alone plants and stuff would grow up there it would just look like anywhere else after a while so if people wandered through and got sick from it they'd just get sick and they wouldn't know what happened mm-hmm.
0: it's like yeah it was just a weird area somewhere around there something's making people sick but no one knows what so, yeah, uh, they
1: wouldn't even necessarily associate it with the area, just someone got sick and we don't know why.
0: I mean, like a wide area, like, you know, you know, when it, something is, it is concentrated in, uh, say, a few city blocks size, but the people in, you know, in sort of like the county size, like, yeah, there's just some weird illness that pops up of that area for, you know, we have no idea why, but, you know.
1: So if you have something this recognizable and people wander through it and then later some or all of them get sick, they're going to associate those things. So what was kind of interesting to me when I realized this is what you're doing is not necessarily creating a universal warning, which is how people often try to think about these things. It's like, how can we create something that is so universally read as a warning that no matter the culture or people that encounter it, they will recognize it as a warning to stay away? And you just can't. You like full on can't.
0: Yeah, there are some ideas about okay, so maybe if we have some way to teach them some basic pictography, and so you like if there's a big long tunnel, we'll have you know a cartoon of someone walking down a tunnel, and then at the end of it, someone climbing up a ladder, and this symbol will be you know next to you know a picture of someone falling off the ladder, and another one will be by a picture of someone climbing up the ladder, and thus you associate these symbols with. This is something to do. This is something not to do. And then later in, you know, further down the tunnel, you have sort of more things to sort of build on that. But even still, this is assuming that they're going to be walking down this tunnel, not just digging straight down.
1: Well, you're also you're assuming they're going to walk into the tunnel. You're assuming they're going to see the signs in the correct order. So, you're going to assume that whatever culture this is has a basic idea of pictography to begin with. Yep. And will associate these random things as images to be read. Mm-hmm. So the thing that we're doing, the plan would be, the basic idea behind these long-term warnings is not that it's a universal warning. What you're doing is creating a new superstition.
0: It's into the community an idea that you don't necessarily need specific language for.
1: So the basic idea here would be if you could universalize this. If we all agreed now we are going to always put these giant spike things at every dangerous long-term site, no matter what, all over the world, you are going to create a common mythology that anytime someone goes near these spiky things, they get sick, and that will become internalized in culture to the point that it'll just get passed down basically as a mythology. Don't go near the spiky things because people get sick from them.
0: So I just kind of avoid that area in total. Now, now there is sort of something related to that, and that is to sort of more actively in the present sort of cultivate that sort of uh, sensibility. But uh, a lot of that will come down to are the people in the neighborhood willing to live there in order to sort of pass this on?
1: Well, you can try to pass it on, but the basic premise behind this would be that the cultural understanding must have disappeared at some point. Yes. Because if you assumed that anything had gotten passed on, you would just all know what a nuclear waste site was. Exactly. and
0: so. But if you have that disconnect between our current society and that society of the future, then you can't rely on that at all. So so I think it's sort of one of those... This this seems nice if it happens to work out as you want here exactly, but if not, well, then people in the future are going to be screwed.
1: And even saying that, I don't think it was intentional, but it's a really interesting thing to look at with this episode because if you look at the planet, that they explore it's a barren near lifeless planet with earthquakes and no water and poisonous plants everything about this planet is saying you don't belong here you're going to die
0: if you stay here for much uh, longer you're gonna have a bad time so just don't stick around please i guess in some ways the lady going around and murdering people and sending spaceships off and things like that was actually being counterproductive because if they just beam down, and like, well, it's dead planet. We don't know what's up. Um, let's leave because there's nothing for us here. Uh, it's like just not just weird. But you know, maybe we'll come back and study it later. But yeah, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, sending the spaceship away was very not not good for that idea. <laughs>
0: well, it's maybe one of those situations where the AI has been on its own too long and doesn't know what to do.
1: <laughs> but I also think it demon—it's demonstrative of the point because while you can look at this kind of retroactively with this idea in mind and say, you know, everything on that planet was poisonous and unpleasant. So maybe it was some sort of warning about not going there, but like maybe the people who made it thought that was a very, very clear indication that would keep people away, but it still didn't.
0: And so maybe the computer was like, Oh crap, they're actually beaming down. What? I'm not, I have to come up with some protocol to like try to warn them off. Um, uh, death. Yes. <laughs>
1: I do feel like that's giving the episode too much credit.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah but sometimes, sometimes we can give that episode too much credit to make things more interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I want to uh, jump back a little bit uh, to the big metal uh, spiky uh, craziness there. That a lot of those sort of designs also have a secondary purpose uh, to not just sort of be as visual warnings uh, for folks, but to actually make the land less usable. So you you mentioned before with landmines, people sort of being forced to make use of land with landmines in it, uh, risking their life to you know do farming or foraging. But if you have a, a large section of territory, say, in an area that's already like in a desert, and it's now these giant, huge cubes with spikes sticking out of them, it makes it a little more difficult to farm there. Yes. Yes. So uh, you're going to be less prone to going in there for any reason other than... To it's like, well, this is kind of cool. I want to go explore it. So, you know, you, you remove the yeah. use of the land for anything else to sort of remove that temptation. So,
1: which is also very helpful because even low level like radiation exposure isn't going to kill you, the long term stuff will. Yes. So, if you can keep people from being in there for any particular length of time, then you maybe should. <laughs> Though unfortunately, some of these designs I've seen would protect the place from the elements, so it might make a good campsite.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, we're out of the wind! Hooray! It's
1: like, oh, look, a bunch of big metal spiky things I can tie my tent to.
0: Hopefully, we don't, get, you know, stick around here for too long because this place gives me the heebie-jeebies. Oh, this is near a, you know, a, a source of water. Oh, um, hmm, well, maybe I will stick around later. Oh no, I got cancer.
1: Well, I'm surprised we even got that much out of this episode, and I'm out of things
0: now. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just trying to remember if there's anything else I want to talk about as far as uh, the sort of spooky architecture here. Um, I guess in the, the, the 96 report, there were sort of different levels. They were sort of arguing for uh, bits of communication to make sure to try to include. Uh, you know, The spikiness and things like that would suggest that there's like man-made objects here. There's something definitely non-natural about here and the having the spike specifically and things like that would be to communicate that it's dangerous here. Uh, And then somewhere you should also include things that's a little bit more informative. If someone actually does know your language or, you know, can figure out the whole pictogram stuff. So you don't want to just leave things, you know, completely up in the air. And so somewhere not, you know, if they go far enough, they will, you know, run into, you know, actual like, all right, this is a nuclear waste site. Don't go in. It was set up by these people um, leave (laughs) and do it in a bunch of different languages and different sort of uh, ways to communicate. So all of the above at the end of the day, you know, is good to have. But that first top level is very essential to make sure that, you know, for folks that aren't able to communicate or to read or, you know, interpret, you know, any of the uh, signs put up that maybe this area is kind of kind of off. That's all I got. It almost makes me wonder,
1: as I keep hearing things about this. Like, this is supposed to be a long way to like long-term communicate with people who don't know your language. There was a discussion I was hearing. I think it was spurred on by Feynman a while back when everyone was worried about nuclear war. Um, of if you had to preserve like just one piece of information to communicate to the, the to like later either humans or some other intelligent species that comes here. Like, what would it be? And everyone was arguing, and it was always like, you know, whatever field you were in. So, of course, Feynman had some sort of thing about, about atomic equations, and some artist had some other thing, so that. But it just made me think, like, we are very, very obsessed with this idea of leaving something for future civilizations to learn from us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Thinking the way that I do about people... We can't have been the first ever society to come up with this idea. So where's all these
0: messages? <laughs> Where are all the messages from the ancient peoples or the the aliens from across the, you know, the universe?
1: Yeah, I mean possibly they're everywhere, but because the culture changed so drastically we have no way to recognize
0: them. Yes. So I, I guess that was gonna, you know, you know, poke me into a hypothetical. It's like what in our modern world May be a secret message, but then I start thinking, it's like, hmm, it's a little too ancient aliens for me, I think. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just think it's interesting, because, like, ah like... You can't know, but it seems pretty likely we wouldn't be the first people to ever think about this. So either it was never implemented like what we do. We haven't implemented any of these things because why would we? It's just thought experiments. Or it's there, but the cultures have changed so drastically in our understanding of even like ancient Greek society, which we feel like we know, but we probably don't have a very good innate understanding of what they were like. It's there and we just can't recognize it. Maybe all of those penises they drew on the sidewalk were actually some hidden message for us.
0: It's like, yeah, if if you put your dick in, in things too much, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be sorry.
1: <laughs> A message for the ages.
0: Like, you know, don't, don't put it in this door. Okay, I'll remember that. Uh, don't put it in this window. Okay, I'll remember that. No one that. has. Don't put it in this vase.
1: I mean, that probably somebody did.
0: Yes. <laughs> Well, that's why they put the warning message there.
1: All right, I think we've gone way off the rails with this so far. All right.
0: So uh, let's, 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 let's tally up some points. Uh, go ahead, Gavin. yeah I think that now it's time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show!
1: Whoa.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where our various contestants have totaled up a number of pro- uh, uh, pr- uh, points, and it's about time we won some prizes and things like that. How are you feeling, Gepwin? Uh. <laughs> yeah, I understand. It's, uh. it's one of those days, yeah. Yeah, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> also, our world's falling apart. Oh god. Anyway, our first uh, uh, you know grand prize is the Gunshots by Computer Award, which goes to the computer behind the, the Loziras zeros uh, that pop up for basically being an automated murder machine. What is it, Wade Gepwin?
1: They win a sales manual so that they can change up their stupid holograms to be more salesy, because from all the sci-fi I've seen, the ones where the computers are trying to actively sell you the murder machine that's trying to murder you are a lot more interesting.
0: Hmm, true. Thankfully, we'll have uh, some of that in the next generation, I believe, right?
1: Yes. First Mm -hmm. season.
0: Our second prize is the Two Days from Retirement Prize, which goes to Watkins for being the very last redshirt death of the original series. What does poor Watkins win, Gepwin? Well, he was going to win
1: his pension, but, you know, yeah, it's just two days from retirement.
0: Sorry, Watkins, but uh, you win death this time. Hmm. Our final award today is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes to the uh, Caladans, which are the aliens who built the planet, apparently. For being able to build planets, even if they're bad with dealing with anything else, like pandemics. This kind of feels topical right now. Anyway, hey, Gepwin, what, what do they win? Gepwin?
1: Yeah, I'm trying. Like, I got confused, because they have to win a p- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because I keep forgetting what the name of the aliens are that can build planets now. Oh no, my sci-fi chops.
0: You mean Slotty Garlfest uh, people?
1: Yes, Slotty yes. Bodfest. <laughs>
0: That name that no one can pronounce. Whoa!
1: What was this people called? Now it's bothering uh, me.
0: Oh, uh, I would have remembered if you hadn't said you couldn't remember. Oh, no. <laughs> one of these moments. Oh, no. Let's let's end the show before before I lose my mind here, Gepwin. Take it away. Yes.
1: Someone will tell us eventually. <laughs> I'm sorry about all of our bad memories. And thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. <laughs> Magnethia,
0: Magnethia, yeah, yeah. Having a bad memory, I think, is on, is on, uh, on message for this, this movie and our discussion about, you know, nuclear waste, uh, long term storage.
1: We just had to wait for the game show to be over, so it's... the pressure was off. Magnethia,
0: Magnethia. It's like it's like not Miranda. It's not Malibu.
1: I'm almost completely certain I could still recite the entire whale monologue from memory and I couldn't remember Magrathia.
0: <laughs> but don't worry, uh I'll, I'll I'll make sure we uh get a, a model of Norway for you in some sometime in the future.
1: <laughs> uh, the next episode is called The Lights of Zedar.
0: Hmm. So uh so who's Zedar or Zedar? I don't
1: know, but they're they're shiny, I guess.
0: Hmm. Very technicolor, very Flashy, very wait a moment, are we going to a disco?
1: Yeah. Sweet. Oh, this is um this is where that Star Trek fan website gets its name.
0: Oh yeah.
1: The Enterprise is en route to Memory Alpha, the Federation's central library. This is why if anyone if you've ever tried to look up anything about Star Trek, you've been routed to a site called Memory Alpha. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> it's like who was the one guy who did the one thing in that one episode? Oh, memory Alpha has all your information. Yep, uh, we're we're not we're not we're not paid by them, by the way. We can just- oh
1: wait, Romulan brainwaves. What's going on?
0: Right? <laughs> what?
1: I don't know. I I whenever I don't remember an episode, I try to like skim over the Wikipedia page so I can see what's going on, but I usually can't from the description. So I think there's Romulans.
0: Now before we move on to lights of Zedhar our zatar's is you know the z place i i do want to point out that in that which survives we have our first instance of a, uh, a a woman uh driving the ship oh yeah yeah
1: i couldn't find a lot of information on her but some random woman who you've never seen before or since mm-hmm. comes in and replaces sulu
0: yes um she's also uh you know uh, apparently uh you know uh, hindu so like the oh. first hindu on the show too
1: when did that come up <laughs>
0: Well, it didn't really come up with the episode, but, you know, that's sort of what her makeup was trying to sort of Oh,
1: okay. She's the one that Spock kept being mean to.
0: Yeah, Spock's a jerk. (laughs) All
1: right, next episode, Lights of Zetar. I have no idea what it's about, but we're going to see a library. Hooray! Shadows in the library.
0: Count the shadows, man.
1: That was a really good Doctor Who episode.
0: I wonder if there's going to be any crossovers here. That'd be
1: sweet. I doubt it.
0: Sort of a weird aside here, but during... The last bit of the final season of the original series here, uh we have uh yeah it is also the last bit of an important Doctor Who serial. Oh. I don't think it started when they this episode came up. But um uh the war games. Well that's fun. <laughs> uh which sort of introduced the Time Lords for the first reason for the first time there.
1: I've seen so many smatterings of original Doctor Who. I know only half of it survived anyway. But...
0: Yeah. Especially first and second Doctors after the first couple seasons. Get sadness.
1: Aw. We should do some Doctor Who one offs.
0: Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps.
1: Anyway, that's all for later. Next week, we are shiny, I guess.
0: Yes. So join us next time on Watches of Tomorrow. <laughs> next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, someone cast Hypnotic Pattern. Oh no! have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin, and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on YouTube.com slash Dr. and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris' Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.